This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Yo, Sajid. What up, Avi? On today's episode, we are joined by organizers Raj Jayadev and Sharice Domingo. Hi, guys. Hey, Thanks hi, for having hi. us. Welcome, we're, welcome. We're so happy to have you. Raj and Sharice are organizers with an organization in Silicon Valley called Debug. They have been fighting for criminal justice reform at various levels, including policing, jail conditions, bail, sentencing mitigation. And they've also worked to develop a model called participatory defense, which brings communities into the court. We're going to be talking to them about that model, about their work in our opening statement. In our deep dive, uh, we're going to discuss with Raj and Sharice, Colin Kaepernick, his community activism, and the NFL's response. And at the end of the show, we're going to do our things. Thanks for having us. We, we, we're fans of the show and fans of what you all do in the courts and in the community, too. So glad to be on air. Raj, Sharice, why don't you guys tell our listeners what Debug is? Okay. Well, it's a community organization based in San Jose. does a lot of different things. Uh, it's really been historically a platform for unheard voices in Silicon Valley to not, not just be heard, but also impact the conversations that they've been about. So it's been kind of a coming together for those that have not been imagined when people think of Silicon Valley outside of the region. So that means young people. It means ethnic communities that maybe aren't, aren't conceptualized when you think about Silicon Valley. People that aren't on a, a dot-com fast track. It means uh, families that have been impacted by incarceration, homeless folks. Uh, we sort of just built a community out of what otherwise felt like isolation and marginalization. And then it became a place where people were kind of given uh, what Silicon Valley promised, which was the ability to invent yourself how you want to by your own terms. And so in this studio that we're recording in, this used to be a dark room that Sharice and other photographers made. Downstairs, there's a silk screening company for the graffiti artists that said we want to be entrepreneurs. Uh, and next door is a big meeting space where families get together to see how they can impact the courtrooms and impact things like police violence. So it's kind of all those things, um, half incubator, half um, sort of dream, dream realized, I guess. So, Rod, you're not from... Silicon Valley, like you're not born and raised here in San Jose. Is that, I was is raised that here. I was oh, you born, were? Yeah, I was born in Milwaukee, lived in Detroit, and then came here when I was like a young kid. <laughs> and then can you tell us about where, what's the kind of the genesis of, of Debug? Where did it Where did it start from? Let's give us that background. It's the Debug origin story. Yeah. <laughs> the Debug origin story. So it started from the assembly shop floors of Silicon Valley in the early 2000s. A lot of those jobs manufacturing and assembly are offshore, don't exist in Silicon Valley. But back in that era, that was a major source of employment that wasn't really recognized when people thought about what's the engine of the new economy. So back then, a lot of people went to temp agencies that would then place them on the back ends of these big companies like HP and Apple, Microsoft and Selectron. And that's actually where Silicon Valley was physically being created, like where people were putting you know, widgets together that would become microchips or printers or computers that, you know, change the course of history. So Debug started from those jobs. So uh, I was working at Hewlett Packard assembling laser jet printers. Um, and it was another side of Silicon Valley that wasn't being talked about. Uh, it was sub-livable wages. There was no health insurance. It was temporary because there were temp jobs. But this is what the, the lived experience was in Silicon Valley that wasn't really being talked about. Long story short, we ended up getting asked to, to write about what that side of the valley was like. We asked other people that we worked with, 
that went to the same temp agencies and they wrote about what it was like working those jobs, what they'd say to the CEO if they ever was in the mm-hmm. same room with them. And they didn't have, it was a, a magazine in San Francisco called Youth Outlook. It was a tabloid. And, and so we, we ran a, a two-page spread. It was the start. It was called Voices of the Young and Temporary. And then um, they didn't have a distribution system down in San Jose. And so the writers, which was like four or five of us, some are still here, like Liz, who's outside right now, was an original writer. We became the distribution system. So we would take the tabloids and follow lunch trucks when they would go to the back end of these companies. And during shift breaks, we'd hand people the, the, the newspaper and people would say, hey, I got a story like that, too, because it was the first time they're kind of seeing their lives reflected in the media. And then we'd say, OK, why don't you come? Why don't we start meeting and get more stories? So we met at a Vietnamese restaurant down the street from the courthouse. We ended up getting more people that wanted to write. Then we had space in a two page spread. So then we started a magazine. That's literally where it, where it began was you working in kind of the underbelly of Silicon Valley and then wanting some of those stories to be told. Yeah, so that so that's where the name come from right. too. And it was funny is like a lot of young people come to debug and they don't know what the name means. You know, they think it's like another language they hadn't heard of. So they'll make the G silent, call it debu, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> stuff like that. Or debug. Debug. Yeah. yeah, you know. But um, and we still get calls of like, hey, I got some cockroaches in my house. Can you guys? <laughs> But it started because on the assembly line, if the product isn't working right as it goes past the end of the conveyor belt, you call the debug unit who would inspect the the product and get to the root cause of the malfunction and expose it. And that was like a common language back then. That was, uh, and so we thought that's kind of what we want to do. We want to debug Silicon Valley, not just the equipment. So that that's what stuck. Sharice, when did when did you enter the fray of Silicon Valley debug? Like, how did that genesis occur? So I was. Living and working in East Palo Alto, so which is like, I don't know, like 20 minutes away from here. What were you doing? I was with a youth organization that I helped start. It was a youth of color organization. We were working on in doing environmental justice issues in, in that small community. And then um, one day, <laughs> in comes Raj and stuff to, the, to our spot and stuff. Was which it love at first sight? <laughs> Tell the truth. Tell the truth. That's right. You were sworn before. So we didn't. We didn't say earlier on the on the pod that Raj and Sharice are a married couple and they have a beautiful baby boy, and um and which is another layer we'll talk about. But go ahead, Sharice. So in walks Raj, and then in walks Raj. I was like, who's that dude? (laughs) (laughs) That's the first thing I said when I met Raj too. I said, who's that dude? Okay, so um, so yeah, see, he came in, and it was actually around the time that he was um, working at um, Hewlett Packard, and we were talking about the connection between like folks who are working in Silicon Valley, these low temp jobs, and building that solidarity and work with like folks like East Palto living in communities of color, and also burdening that um, environmental justice and stuff responsibility for this for all of Silicon Valley. Raj was like starting to do this work with folks like Sam and 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 Liz, and then one of our folks at um, at Yuka, that was the name of the organization. Um, her family also um, had other family members who were working in those factories and said, "I have stories to share." They were putting together picture frames or like those um, um, those electronic, you know green things that chips mm, <laughs> the chips <yeah>. right <laughs> green things <laughs> so and so they um you know would go to that vietnamese restaurant and so then that's kind of how i kind of just started hanging out with um with with folks and then but and then 
I um, did some photography. I really believed in the whole, yeah, this is, you know, the place where you could be wherever you want. And I felt like I wanted to really explore that and stuff and kind of continue that. So then that's kind of how I became part of Debug. What year was this all, roughly, where you two met? Was it like 2001, 2002? 2001. Yeah. And, and Debug is kind of this uh, storytelling organization around debugging the system, which at the time was kind of like a, what is Silicon Valley workers? What sort of impact does Silicon Valley have? And then in 2004, Rudy Cardenas is, is killed. Can you guys talk about like what happened in terms of a shift with Debug or who he was? Yeah, I re- I remember that day that Rudy Cardenas was was killed by San o- by a state DA agent, and Debug used to be located at in in downtown at the Peace Center on Seventh Street, and I remember the feeling of that day, just like this chaotic, not knowing what happened or what was even going on, and Rudy was a father of four, who um um was killed by a state drug agent named Michael Walker um, and I remember the paper was like you know they totally framed things as like oh he was there was no weapon found versus there was just no weapon period and stuff and um, the next day his um, daughter Regina and Karina who in the debug universe was you know part of debug and stuff like folks of ours knew them and stuff they had a vigil and um Raj and David, um, one of our folks at Debug, who also had a radio show, he was starting his radio show um, and stuff, um, went to the vigil and we just wanted to support that family. Like it was in Debug's neighborhood, it was in the neighborhood that Raj lived in, um, it was in downtown. Um, and so we didn't, we just wanted to follow their lead, we just wanted to support what they were doing. Regina was a um, who's the oldest daughter. She was a San- she went to Lincoln in you know here. Um, she high school Lincoln High School and stuff. She I remember talking to her days later and stuff, and she was like, you know, I got a D in speech. I got a D in like you know English class and stuff. I never liked speaking, but she spoke about her dad, and she just wanted folks to just really remember and know who he was because the paper was like really talking about how he had this past and all that, and so. She wanted to let people know this was a father, this was a hardworking guy, and they loved him very much. And so that's kind of how um, we started getting into the stuff around police accountability, police violence and stuff, and really just following the lead of the Cardenas family. So that resulted in like the um, a pretty historic indictment of like the of a of a law enforcement in in California. There was an open grand jury hearing. I th- it's the last open grand jury hearing wow. that we ever had here around law enforcement. I remember sitting at in the courtroom and stuff and watching and listening to to the evidence, watching people um, listen to this police officer talking about how they ran after Rudy. It was such an eye opening experience and when we hear of the same kind of things happening with the families now like you know you've met Lori um and Josiah and their families um same stuff right that's happening recurring patterns Mm -hmm. so then so debug is then kind of takes it uh, incorporates this effort against uh police violence at that point we have come to be be involved with the both of you and debug through uh, participatory defense. So I want to talk a little bit about that. You know, for a long time, people would ask me because I, I would say, um, you know, I'm working with Debug on on a case, and they do participatory defense. And they say, well, what's that? 
And then I would have to articulate to them what it was. And I would go through your website and try (laughs) to find uh, some answers to it. And what I've arrived at is essentially a very simple concept, but simple, profound concept that it's it's a model where community members and family members can essentially become part of the defense team in support of loved ones or community members that are uh, that are in the criminal justice system and um, whether that be supporting us public defenders in gathering information witnesses documents or um, and or coming to court on behalf of a client uh, in support of them but maybe you one of you can describe uh, what participatory defense means to you or what you understand it to be yeah, I mean, I, I, I think your description is probably going to be what appears on our website tomorrow. <laughs> that, was, that was much clearer than I think what we've been rambling about. Um, but yeah, you, you, what you said is exactly right. Since Rudy's passing and his death and what that ignited in us as a community, was it, it was an invitation to movement building, community organizing. And that meant using collective action to support someone that felt they were under the foot of the institution or targeted or belittled or disrespected or forgotten about by the powers that be. So like Regina, who wanted the DA, wanted the mayor, wanted the police department to hear her and also push for accountability. And so we used the science of community organizing to embolden her, to support her, so she was sort of the tip of the sword. Um, and where we got involved in police accountability after that, permanently altered the DNA of our organization, uh, where we became that, that group in San Jose that was fighting for police accountability that families would turn to when there was an act of violence. But what would happen is the story usually kind of ended for us after we talked about the point of contact with police. As we started making policy changes around downtown policing practices, more people started coming to us, but they wouldn't only want to talk about the incident, they would want to talk about the fallout with the rest of the system, like the prosecution and the charges. And so there's sort of a You know, the story of community organizing and police accountability is a common story in every city, but it usually ends after that certain stage. It doesn't look upstream to how can that community organizing actually impact the rest of the case or the DA or how can it be part of the defense team. So we would relinquish power at arguably the most critical moment. So we believed in collective action. We believed in community organizing. But when someone then who was tased or wrongfully charged or arrested went to court, we let them go alone, really countering our own belief system. And so what we decided to do is be irreverent to this notion that only lawyers and judges can make changes in the courts, and we thought we'd bring the intellect and the power of the community to penetrate that court system to transform it. And so what that that means in in a very practical way is fanning an instinct that that existed well beyond and outside a debug of families or, or it could be a religious institution, it could be a teacher who has someone that cares about that is now facing a prosecutor, a judge, a jury, racial bias, an entrenched system, mandatory minimums, all these things. And they want to do something about it, but they're not sure what because they don't have a bar card or, or what have you. They don't understand the language and they step into court. All we're really trying to do is, is fan that instinct into a practice which is families and communities don't need to be pseudo-lawyers. They just need to be who they are and bring who they are quite naturally to the table so they can partner with a defense attorney to change the outcome of the case. And we think even the kind of the atmosphere in the courtroom. Avi, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm ready. So <laughs> I think we had a conversation about debug, and you mentioned 
in you know to Raj and Sharice that you're a debug convert. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, can, can you talk, talk about, about that? that? Like yeah. talk about what that what that means and what the story is behind that? Yeah. So I shared that we all together did a Law for Black Lives training a couple weeks ago. Uh, we were talking about participatory defense, and I have described myself as a convert, or uh, I've come to participatory defense. I didn't, you know get it Mm -hmm. on the first day or Mm -hmm. second day or third day. And one of the reasons for that is as a criminal defense attorney, as, as when you're training, you know, when you're, when you're being taught how to practice, there's a lot of kind of textbook conservative principles. Like, you know, like one version is keep your cards close to your chest. You know, that's a very important principle. And so there's me and there's the client and that's it. And my communication insular kind of practice and and you know you think about um when a when an event happens when someone's arrested when some harm is caused in a community right and then now there's accusations or there's some description of how those relate to criminal charges we have this very important relationship with our client which is a private relationship where we're building trust and we're you know fighting things out based on these very strict principles and and you're, you become risk averse, right? Like you, you just see all downside. You know, you're just thinking about how could this play out in a negative way. As a new attorney, there's this, you know, we just, I just happened to start practicing in a place where this movement was existing. You know, I didn't know about it when I started working where I work. Uh, I didn't know that there's this group that's trying to organize in and out of the court space. And uh, that they're advocating and supporting individuals. So, you know, the first kind of reaction is there's this group and they're involved and they're going to want me to do certain things and maybe I don't want to do those things as the attorney or, you know, they're, they're going to have questions that I'm going to, do I need to answer them? Well, it's important to my client that I answer them, but they're not my, they aren't my client. Uh, and so it was a process for me of kind of learning what debug was doing, seeing how they, the role they play for our clients, families, seeing how they are a space for clients and their family members when an awful thing happens. So when somebody's arrested and they're sitting in jail and their family members are coming to court and they're totally lost about what's happening, debug has a place for them to a, a family's group on Sundays. Uh, is it sun- every Sunday or when mm-hmm. is it? Every yeah, every Sunday in San Jose and every Tuesday also. To help, you know, there there are certain things that I can't do as the defense attorney that I, I don't have capacity or competency to do that I have to learn and get better at. But having this institution exist in a community that I could then connect with, maybe, maybe and I'm going to throw this back to you, to learn more about the world in which my client's living, yeah. right? So I'm the attorney when I'm with my clients, you know, we're in a courtroom, I'm in a suit. When I'm in jail, I'm dressed less formally, but they're in a jail cell. It's not like, it doesn't really lend itself to these really open, trusting relationships. They did not pick me, right? As their public defender, I represent people who do not select me to represent them. So there are these structural things that can limit your ability to learn about your client and the place that they're in there's this huge space for the community to be involved in strengthening the relationship between the defense attorney and the client so that it's a really effective relationship. And I found that debug is one of the places, not the exclusive place, because there's nothing you know, preventing this from happening in any other 
you know, place from happening in Seattle or happening in Raleigh or happening wherever. So, but there's these, this need to create a space for these relationships to be strengthened. And that's how I see participatory defense. In terms of being a convert, I'm a convert too, because for a couple things, reasons. One is, like Avi was saying, our practice, the way we were kind of trained and implicitly and explicitly is almost the four corners of the case file. Um, so look at what the client's charged with, look at their rap sheet, look at the police reports, figure out what we need to investigate. Um, you, you know, is there enough evidence for these charges to, uh, to go forward? Uh, if so, what kind of exposure do they have? How much time are they going to get? And so we don't really, in that process, there at least there traditionally wasn't a lot of room um, in our own mentalities or psyches to get to know the client, to talk to their families. Like it just it didn't seem relevant or even worthwhile um, unless unless there was some story that we could, we could tell to convince a judge or a DA to maybe give our clients a better offer. So in that sense, debug has really changed or expanded the framework where we're kind of forcing us to look at our clients as human beings, meet their family members, um, and kind of get to know them. But there's resistance to that. Initially, when I would hear about debug in the office, I've told you guys about this, the impression that I had was that you all were agitators and that we're essentially uh, armchair quarterbacking our cases, like essentially asking us what we weren't doing and calling us and confronting us in court about like the things that we were or weren't doing. Um, only till I got a case myself that was connected to debug. Did I see what debug was able to offer me and, and, and they weren't inhibiting my work. They were actually amplifying my work and the way, so the, the case that brought me closest to you all was the case of my client Christian, who's 14 years old, charged with an attempted murder as an adult. What Debug did for him was, one, connect me with his mother, who was a Spanish-speaking woman who I couldn't com communicate with directly, absent having an interpreter, and the courts don't provide interpreters for family members. That's number one. Two is that you all facilitated me getting information from Christian and his mom uh, that I w otherwise wouldn't have had access to, uh, his birth records, his school records, um, the neighborhoods that he grew up in. So maybe you can talk about that, Sharice, about the social biography elements of what Debug does now as part of the participatory defense model. Like, how did you, in Christian's case or in other cases, essentially bring his backstory to life? Yeah, I mean, we started doing social bios as... Um, as kind of like just following the the principle of debug about telling your story. We I remember there was a, a, a father from East Palo Alto about when we first started in 2008, 2010. He was facing a five year prison sentence and he for a low level drug charge and for selling like twenty dollars um, to an undercover. And he um, he he basically told us, like, look, like I could do the five years which is like a problematic thing in itself to think about. Like he could do five years, in, like he could put it in his head that he could do five years in prison, but that he had three daughters who were, um, he was a single father for. Um, he took them to school every day, took them to a volleyball practice, and what he was really scared about them being able to 
go into the foster care system. So um, and this was someone who wasn't that connected to the community, for you know, um, but he had enough. He had the AA group he went to. He had a church that he went to. And he had the teachers um, at his daughter's school who could vouch for him and talk about how they got straight A's and they did all their homework. They came to school mm. like well fed and happy and stuff. And dad was there picking them up at 3.30. And so um, so he put that together and then we gave him a camera. So, wow. you know, and we and it was one of those disposable cameras like yeah. you get at Walgreens. And so when they used to have them, so we gave him a camera and we said, just take a picture, take pictures of your day. So he put together a packet, a social bio packet of these letters, these photos. So he did it on his own, but it, it, empowered yeah. by you all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He totally did it on his own. Um, and then he met with his probation officer who was going to recommend um, some time and totally won her over. Wow. And she um, she's like, OK, you know what? I'm not going to recommend five years. Right. And then they went to he and then he showed it to his public defender. And he was still at that point. This is in another county. He was like, oh, I'm not sure about this. I don't know. Like, I I don't know about this. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. They don't know if it's going to relevant. It's going to be relevant or carry the day. In any yeah, way. yeah. And what kind of day the person's having and stuff. And then um, <laughs> and then so then we went to court. Right. And the DA is like, oh, no, five years, right? Five years. And we're like, no way, you know? And then the G the judge looks at the at the packet, right? And she's sitting there. She's going by page by page. And um, she was like, well, DA, have you seen this? Have you seen what he's going to lose, right? And um, so at the end of the day, you know, Carnell, I remember he was like nervous. I'm like, he's like, do you think it's going to work? I was like, I don't know. Like, and it was like it's like minutes before they're going to tell us. And the judge was like, I'm going to give you a six month outpatient program and stuff. You could be home with your kids work. That's amazing. Yeah, it was. And so, so just completely shifting from this, yeah. this, this culture of incarceration that we yeah. operate within and then kind of showing by, mm -hmm. by, by real life examples that this person, the response to this crime is not more, isn't not incarceration. It's, it's yeah. something else. Yeah, totally. And it's really about, you know, when we talk about humanizing the person and right. this really sterile, court process that um and stuff like it was really trying to humanize those actors right yeah. so it's like telling the you know when she when he was sharing that story with the po like she was like she related to that as a mother as well like seeing those right. little kids and stuff yeah so. it's one thing for us as attorneys i mean one of the takeaways that i'm hearing is it's, it's one thing for us to talk about our clients being a good father or an employee it's a different thing to show it right to show yeah. it and to show it descriptively whether it be through video or the testimonies of their of their ki uh, kids or coworkers or colleagues or neighbors and that carries so much more weight mm -hmm. and so that's what i've taken away from the this process is i mean with working with debug and growing as an attorney is just uh, zooming out on our clients um really learning about their humanities. Everyone has a story. Mm -hmm. There's a story behind every crime. Mm -hmm. There's a story behind every person. Uh, how did that person arrive to commit that crime that particular mm -hmm. day? What's the appropriate response relative to their community circumstances? And I think that's what Debug really helps us do. Sharice, you're Filipino mm -hmm. or Filipina. Yes, And Raj, mm -hmm. your family's from India. Mm -hmm. um, so growing up from these two uh, ethnic communities and with those ethnic backgrounds did you ever think that you would be doing organizing work number one number two is what's kind of your fam family response to the to the work that you're doing like because it's kind of non-traditional yeah I don't, I don't think i ever would have envisioned 
that I'd be doing debug and who knows how to describe what that is. Um, <laughs> We've spent 40 minutes trying to <laughs> capture yeah, yeah. it and we, we'll we see, still have a lot let's more. see what the edited version <laughs> looks like. Um, but I also had no, I had no vision really of what my future was going to be like. And so I, I mean, I, I, I feel fortunate that I, I get to, I get to do something extremely rare, traditional or not, which is I get to actually experiment whether the values that I espouse can be practically applied and if they could have value or not. So how, my family response, um, look, they're still trying to figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they think I do like recycling, <laughs> em- environmental <laughs> things. Uh, you know, it's it's a total it's a total mystery. But I think they're they're you know they're happy that I'm happy. How yeah. about you, Sharice? Um, yeah, I mean, my family knows. You know, I was part. I'm part of Debug and Yuka beforehand. But I think like that really. Um, they're, they're not exactly sure what it's about and stuff either. Um, my sisters do and stuff. But, like, I think for me, like, um, you know, because I grew up undocumented, like, you know, for a long time and stuff. And um, so the economic choices weren't a lot, you know, growing up. And so, but I kind of was like, well, you know, okay, on that level, there's that brain level that's like well I guess we got to figure out what you got to do and then on another level it's like well you know what I could be whatever I want (laughs) and stuff in a way that allows me to fly under the radar and also fly way over it Hmm. as long as I'm not crossing the whatever line that was so um so that's pretty yeah you know for people who are listening every place that people live in has a dysfunctional bail system that needs Mm -hmm. to be changed and you all have been working <laughs> on the ground uh, trying to change it in our community. Uh, have, is there anything, any thoughts that you have about kind of effectively communicating to stakeholders or to people? You know, how do, how do you make change happen around bail? Yeah, we, you know, we've been working on bail in, in maybe a, a conventional organizing way um, in the sense that we're, we're co-sponsors of a state legislation that essentially is trying to end money bail. Um, but also we we won some policy changes in Santa Clara County that were unprecedented um, and making some pretty sweeping changes around bail. The, the one piece that I think we're excited about because it started from the families that meet every Sunday um, was something that we operationalized and something that we're calling the Community Release Project. So the way we see it is uh, as bail reform is kind of sweeping the country, there's this question of detention or detention's little brother, which is supervision. And the big fear nationally is that, sure, as bail reform and, and, and the logic of it falls apart, of, of bail falls apart, you may see less people detained because of bail reform efforts, but you're going to maybe see more people incarcerated in another form, meaning through ankle monitors and, and probation supervision and that sort of thing. What we're saying with the Community Release Project is there's a, a third lane that could be tested, which is having people just be connected to the community. And when I say operationalize, it's essentially what we did with public defenders here, where we'd have someone, so Stephanie comes to mind, who she had a $100,000 bail. Uh, we knew her before she got in, uh, charges, and we knew her life story and her context. We put together a social biography packet like what Sharice described, um, and she was actually denied OR initially. We met with the public defender, 
ask that he um, have a, a bail reduction hearing. We showed up at court. We gave them the social biography packet, all the things that were beyond the four corners of the case, um, talked about uh, where she lived and who would support her, uh, the consequences of, a, of an extended detention. Um, and we showed up at the hearing, but then we also showed, not, showed up not just as advocates, but as like a community touchstone. And so the attorney was able to use us in that way, which is to say, to tell the court, um, Stephanie is also part of or connected or getting support of Silicon Valley Debug, who is going to help ensure that she gets back to court, that she has transportation needs, she'll get it, but also that she'll be supported by them throughout the week. So any of these other ancillary issues that get in the way of people returning to court because they need housing, they need employment, they need counseling, that is, that's already supported through the organization. Um, and so we got her out without having to pay a penny. She got out on, on OR. And so what we're saying is that community glue could happen all the time. Um, and so we called it the Community Release Project. We got it voted in in Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors. They're going to RFP it to find other community organizations to do exactly what we did. And then we wrote it into the state legislation. So if it passes, if Bonta Hertzberg's legislation passes, it'll go statewide. What are the other uh, platforms or kind of causes of the day at, at this point for for debug uh, kind of moving forward? Um, well, we're still working on also a lot of just criminal justice work and statewide stuff like around the full implementation of Prop 57 and working with various like just community partners that fly on the same altitude at debug around um, the state on how to make sure those Prop 57 transfer hearings are implemented right and th the culture is shifted um so there's that there's also a couple of other bills around um, miranda rights for youth um around expanding youth parole hearings to young people under 25 um so that it matches the brain science and supreme court decisions um around um young people getting um young people on lwop getting a parole um if they were under um 18 um, there's all those bills. And then there's also, um, you know, debug is kind of like we feel like our roots are in San Jose, you know, and so we care about the city, too. So we were working around um, housing issues, rent control, um, same families who are coming here around criminal justice or they have cases are also the ones facing evictions. And so they're out at City Hall and then pushing for evictions um, or rent control ordinances. And now that also with Google coming in and stuff, really trying to imagine what our community could be. So like trying to organize folks on that. So, And just to follow up, uh, Prop 57 was largely supported by, uh, drafted by, mm -hmm. and um, ultimately kind of perpetuated by debug right and, and your partners is that fair yeah for sure like we were part of a statewide you know coalition that really helped imagine what prop 57 could look like especially on the youth part just coming from our our own experiences and turning folks out one of our main organizers is Vettel, who is christian's mom who really could speak about what direct file meant you know and stuff and how much that language really people knew what that meant <laughs> the yeah. moms knew what that meant so and you talk about how debug is going national and the work that you all do to take the model here and implement it uh, across the country? We've been doing this participatory defense thing for maybe nine years in San Jose. Um, and about two and a half years ago, we decided to share it with groups that were in the same position we were, which is they had people they cared about and wish they could do something more about it, weren't sure what. And that could look like 
uh, an advocacy organization, a youth center, a church, a temple, a union hall um, that were sitting on this community power but didn't know how to flex it. And so we started training organizations that were in the same predicaments we were. And so we, they would become what we call participatory defense hubs um, that would host these weekly meetings with families and community members and then go into court, build relationships with the defense attorneys and change the outcomes of cases. So we have it going now in 15 different cities across the wow. country. Um, we had our first national network convening last year and agreed upon like a certain set of principles and it's it's essentially growing because it's addressing this one blind spot of this new consciousness around the criminal justice system where there's obviously a lot of attention well deserved on police and point of contact ever since Ferguson really and then when people started looking at the numbers of incarceration there's been work and effort put in by the movement about conditions in prisons and jails and then some effort on the reentry side how to keep people out but missing was this glaring blind spot of how people got incarcerated after a point of contact with police, which is the courts. And so the conveyor belt um, really was insulated from community pressure. So all these groups now are, are insinuating themselves into the court system to change the outcome of cases and, and the, the mechanics of the court. Um, so we're in 15 different cities, and mm -hmm. we're going to Tulsa next, and... Um, starting actually with some groups in Philly and Chicago, um, groups that are, are, are now changing the conversation around prosecutor accountability. Um, and, and so that, that connection is, is matching. We actually, uh, we got a question what? from a listener. What? So part of the Aider Nation. We're doing this now. It's a li listen, <laughs> listeners. Okay. It's one of our tweet at us. Send <gasps> us. No, it doesn't matter that we knew her. Um, yeah, that's okay. To, uh, I was about to say, whose cousin is Yeah, this? I know. That's sassy outside. <laughs> I'll give her a shout. Uh, Anjali gets a shout. Anjali yeah. gets a shout. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fellow public. Anjali Bargava. Yeah. Uh, gets a shout. So um, one of the things that she was asking about, so we're all, everybody's been watching what's happening in Charlottesville. Uh, we're disturbed by it and people are feeling like they want to act and they want to do something. And so one of the questions was people want to donate time. <laughs> they want to donate money uh, to racial justice causes. Do you have any recommendations for places for them to direct their energies? Our methodology is do the work locally. And so that means that wherever you are in the country, there is a debug style group um, that has many different names and wears different hats. But when it comes to actual freedoms and, and changing the assaults on people, it doesn't have to be a flashpoint across the country. Chances are it's happening in your own county. And so find out who those groups are and then work and collaborate with them. Like what we say is we think the action's in the local courthouse. And that, that means the police officers that don't get prosecuted. Um, it means you know the thousands of, of black and brown communities that do get prosecuted in exchange. It means that there is likely a, a DA sitting uh, in an office making those decisions that is totally unaccountable. And so the movement needs to be brought to those actors that have not really been put on, on, on the fire. The, the one thing that we were talking about this morning about Charlottesville, we we're talking about the removing of these statues. Uh, because one of the statues that got removed was in Durham. And we have a participatory defense hub in Durham, a family over there called Spirit House, that looks and feels a lot like Debug. What we're talking about when we saw the images is the the statues are symbols. and It's symbols of an, a part of the American identity 
that for some reason was celebrated, which was just a glaring insult to us all. But in terms of sustaining a movement after that, it isn't just about the destruction of what the symbols represent that could be taken down. It's what's happening in the courthouses that are right behind (laughs) those symbols. So Mm -hmm. in Durham, that, that statue was in front of the Durham courthouse. And so if you want to attack symbolically the, the institution of racism, you could take the statue down of stone. But if you want to see the institution of racism on a daily basis inflict its harm, it's in the courthouse that that statue is right in front of. Yeah. And wow. so try to, and so what I'd say to Anjali is to, to see how you could, you could challenge those institutions of racism as they're playing out currently every day, not just uh, a representation of, of America's past. Okay, we're back. NFL season starting up. Colin Kaepernick has stood for his convictions in a number of ways. He's put his money where his mouth is in ways that we'll talk about. And he is currently a former starting quarterback from last season who is not signed to an NFL team. So why don't we, uh, Sajid, why don't you set the table for us? Yeah, so um, when Colin Kaepernick took, when he sat down initially, and then he ultimately took a knee last fall, one of the things that came out of that was his million dollar pledge where where he was going to uh, be donating a million dollars to community organizations across the country. At the time when he announced that he was going to do that, I remember seeing Avi tweet at Colin Kaepernick saying, uh, you should consider donating to Silicon Valley debug. And then I tweeted right away. (laughs) Yeah, right away. Never, never miss an opportunity to fire off the tweet. (laughs) And so then a few months later, Kaepernick's website comes out and it has a list of the organization, the first batch of organizations that he was donating to. I think it was a hundred thousand dollars at a time. And the first organization listed, lo and behold, was debug. Debug. And so I wanted to ask you all uh, first, um, how did you come to connect with Colin? And you know, what was the nexus of that? Well, Colin called and said that he received a tweet from Avi. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I follow this guy on Twitter. He's, He's got all the tweets. <laughs> he might have a podcast in a couple of years. Yeah, so he was, He's a young. He's got a good arm. Yeah, he, was, he was investing in the future. Um, yeah, I don't know. Man, yeah, but we got we got this random um, call from Guy Cat who said that Colin's you know been following our work for a long time, and he's gonna give a donation. Would you would you like to to receive a donation? But he asked an interesting question. I think really defined the rest of our experience with Colin Kaepernick, and I think maybe doesn't get communicated when people think about the donations. It it wasn't simply just about giving a local organization some money, and the fact that he he would pick us as a local organization says a lot. It means that he wasn't sort of po- obviously politically scared. Um, that we weren't a conventional nonprofit that some celebrity gives money to because of the causes. But second, the question wasn't about, you know, we, we want to put out a press release of how much we're giving you. He said, is there anything that that you think uh, Colin and you all could work on together? Which is just this ho- whole other level of involvement that has really defined what and what we've witnessed him do with young people in particular and the causes that he's championing. So he, he, he gave us a, a donation. We basically came up with a list of, Look, here, here are 
three things that we wish we could do, but it's probably too politically volatile to get any private foundation donations for. And we we offered it up and he said, this sounds like exactly what I'd want to support. And then they they gave us a a donation. Can you talk about what those three things were and are? Yeah. So the first thing um, was actually out of the brainchild of one of the families we work with, Lori Valdez, whose partner Antonio uh, was killed by San Jose State Police. Uh, and she had launched this really captivating campaign called Justice for Josiah, which is Antonio's son, um, which is really justice for the child that was left behind. And she has been a, a real central figure in San Jose, kind of a glue for other families. And the thing that kept coming up for her and other families was, I wish we had a space to heal. Um, and we had, we had done all the marches, we had done all the fighting, we had challenged the DA, we challenged the police department, but really what they felt was most urgent for their families was a space and time to heal. And so we, one of the projects he supported was a healing retreat for families who had lost loved ones to police violence. And so we hosted it in San Jose, but it was for families up and down the West Coast. Uh, it was a day-long event, and it, it included a lot of very authentic and sincere and emotionally charged talking circles, meditation, art therapy, yoga, mural drawing by, by kids. And it became something that really was addressing a need that hadn't been vocalized in the larger movement. And now something that's going to be part of tradition. We're going to do this annually because, unfortunately, that membership is going to grow. So one was the healing treat. The other one was something also with the families of those who lost loans to police violence that we call the First 24 for families. So we have a framework called the First 24 that we use in the criminal courts, uh, which is what can a family do within the first 24 hours of arrest to impact the trajectory of that charge? And that includes how to impact things like whether you get out on bail or, or release on your own cognizance, how to memorialize evidence so your defense attorney has a defense that they could use before that material evaporates and, and how to show up at court. But we just translated that, that thinking onto what is it that families um, would want other families to know within the first 24 hours after a critical incident with a police officer. Mm. And they they were sitting on all this knowledge that they wish someone told them when the incident happened to them about uh, what to say to the police, what not to say to the police, what to not say to the, to the media, how to how to secure evidence before the police get to it. And so uh, we're making a first 24 for families who lost loved ones to, to law enforcement violence. And then the third one circles back to the first part of the show, which is he also supported uh, social biography videos for young people who were facing life sentences and needed their story told, but we didn't have the resources to make it. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the the retreat is groundbreaking. I think our communities are inching towards addressing trauma and healing from trauma, and then to identify this very unique set of folks that are uniquely traumatized and, and trying to heal their loved ones, especially the kids, so that they don't fall kind of prey to their own trauma that has been uh, inflicted to, uh, on them from a young age. It's pretty pretty transformative and really revolutionary. The Know Your Rights camp that uh, Kaepernick has been putting on, he's been putting them on in New York and Oakland, all over the place. I'm not sure if there was one in San Jose, uh, but uh, can you talk about what that was like going to the camp? What kind of involvement does he have? I, I imagine he's not just sitting in the back as people instruct that he's actually uh, involved and, and what, if you, uh, 
I was kind of surprised to see what the rights are that he's talking about. You know, like when I think about know your rights, I think about uh, free from unlawful detention. You know, <laughs> a- am I free to leave? Uh, right to an attorney. You know, those rights. And I think that he might have been adopting a kind of more expansive idea of what young people's rights are, including like the right to have dignity and to be treated respectfully and and to have value and be recognized for the value that they have. So what what was that like? Yeah, so we we participated in the first Know Your Rights camp that that Colin put on in Oakland, and we were one of the pieces that were supposed to cover uh, what your rights are in terms of contact with police and the criminal justice system. But you're right, Avi. He he had a, a much more expansive lens of what he interpreted as a right. So it was what it was written on the back of his shirt. He had these sort of 10 rights and it was kind of harkening back to like the Panther 10 point plan. So we go to this thing and we didn't quite know what it was going to be like. We thought we would kind of skip a workshop and some kids would be there and he might say something in the beginning, but he was all in, in, in every sense of the word. So the entire conceptualization of the day he was intimately involved in setting up the chairs he was doing early in the morning, just the way any other organizer would have to set up for a day long event. Um, you could tell, you know, you know he was tired uh, just from the start of the day. And he was engaging with these young people in between workshops and he, he would sit in on the workshops in, in, in kind of full humility, trying to soak in what people were talking about. So there's workshops on things that don't conventionally get thought of when you think of no, you're right. So there's there was uh, workshops on your health and well-being and nutrition. There was, there was workshops on economic stability and financial stability and how not to fall into the pitfalls. There was ones on how to get to college. And it was kind of this holistic view of what the rights and possibilities are of young people. He ended up giving you know this talk uh, at the end that was really sincere and it didn't seem like it was scripted at all about his own personal transformation. And the the, the young people were at this you know at the edge of their seats not not so much I think because he was a celebrity but just because of the authenticity of how you're sharing the story and so like at the end he gave backpacks to all the kids and he stuffed the backpacks we saw him he was the one stuffing he didn't have interns doing it and it had like cool stuff like headphones and Dre headphones Beats headphones and stuff but it had some other interesting things that I thought were really telling and nuanced so he had the autobiography of Malcolm X he had one of those kits where you could test your DNA to see your genealogy because that was so informative for him in his own life journey. So it, it, it was uh, a much fuller experience. So all, all I would say, though, is that these young people walked out of that building in downtown Oakland much different than what they did when they walked in. That's pretty amazing. So with that framework in did mind... Did you get some headphones or a backpack? <laughs> I'm still waiting on I got a yeah. shirt. What, <laughs> what's your genealogy? Turns out I'm Indian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Full Indian, yeah. yeah. If they looked at my DNA, I would just say like, yeah, brown. 100%, 100% brown. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, uh, Raj and Sharice, so with that framework, you guys have personally met and interacted with Colin Kaepernick and his team. Uh, I've seen the work that he's done, the money that he's put in, and now he remains unsigned. You know, he's a quarterback that once played in the Super Bowl. He has won playoff games. He's beaten other big-time quarterbacks. Last year, he played pretty well on a poor team. But he's not. He, it seems like he's, uh, teams are going out of their way not to pick him up. And so there's been a movement online and in social media uh, for people to boycott the NFL. And actually, I'm a huge NFL follower. It's part of my DNA in terms of watching, you know, spending my entire day 
watching um, the NFL on Sundays, planning around Monday night football, Thursday night football, <laughs> consuming all the fantasy football information. But then I had a friend of mine last week tag me in a Facebook post saying that he was boycotting the NFL in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick and that he was essentially encouraging me to do it too. And so I've thought about it and I've been grappling with it and I have come to the decision to follow suit and to do the best I can to boycott the NFL in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. Because what I heard from, on a, I heard a sports writer named Peter King uh, say that he talked to some folks in NFL organizations who are saying that the football side of teams want to bring him in because he's a good football player and can contribute to their squad. But on the business side, there are folks that are saying he's going to be bad for business, even though he had one of the best jerseys, uh, best, uh, best selling jerseys last year. And so my thought is if not, if, if signing Colin Kaepernick is going to be bad for business, we as a community have to make it so that not signing him is going to be worse for business. That's my take. I wanted to ask you all, uh, one, do you guys follow the NFL? And then two, what are your positions about boycotting the NFL in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick? Well, you know, I don't, um, I didn't grow up here. So like <laughs> football, not in your DNA. <laughs> Actually, Nunji was asking me that yesterday. He was like, what sports did you guys have in the Philippines? Like, like chess? <laughs> I was like, what that was your answer? Yeah. And I was like, no, yeah. He gave me that option. Uh, uh. I was like, and um, so, but you know what? Actually, so I started getting into it like in college, right? And then not like playing or anything, just watching. <laughs> I was you like, could throw play. me the ball. No, I can't play. <laughs> but, um, you know, because our meetings were always on Sundays. So then mm. at some point we just never, I never, I hadn't watched it and stuff, you know. I would watch Monday night football and stuff. But then here's my story. When I found out I was pregnant and stuff, I remember counting the months and I was like, oh, man, I'm going to go on maternity leave during football season. That means I get to stay home on Sundays. I get to watch football again and stuff. So like I really looked forward to that. And the first, you know, three months at home, we would me and then she would watch it together. Well, me and stuff. And um, so, yeah, I so but now, you know, we're back on Sundays and stuff. So like, I mean, on a on a on a level of like being able to stand, you know, with Colin, who stood by debug at, you know, at a and and like you said, like put his money where his mouth is, put his, um, you know, matched his principles with like with his actions and stuff like for me, it's like a easy decision, you know, but I didn't have much to give up. <laughs> to begin with so then to me then i think about what is my action mm -hmm. what else could i do to stand with colin you know kind of thing on, on that level rog you have any thoughts about that yeah i mean which in terms of the boycott it i, I think it's amazing you know so that it gives it, an invitation to people to act um so it isn't just sort of applauding colin kaepernick for his stance you know in front of the screen but you actually do something that could effectuate change and so I'm excited for the boycott in terms of us. Yeah, like we, our our meetings, our participatory defense meetings are on Sundays. So we weren't at home a lot uh, during games. You know, it was always funny back when, you know, when 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 Cap was making his Super Bowl, Bowl run, we always knew when there when the Niners were on TV because our meetings would get thin. 
you know, <laughs> right? Like that's how. So we had, you know, people had people had trial on Monday, <laughs> you know, and yeah, they had to get ready. But we're like, okay, the Niners must be on. Yeah. Um. So at least we won't have that problem. Um, yeah. Moving forward, Avi, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So I, for me, I've been kind of, uh, I haven't been watching as much football lately. I have once you like stop watching for a little while. For me, it's been like, wait a minute, there's this thing. It's Sunday. <laughs> and I can like take my kids into the forest. Then we can like walk around. And then I can see every single thing that happened at seven o'clock in like a 20 minute period. Because I'm watching like a three hour game for two catches. Right. Like I, I, I kind of re- have been reflecting on how much I've actually been hate watching the NFL as opposed to real watching it. You know? like, <laughs> I imagine why people watch The Bachelor, you know, it's like why I watch the NFL recently, but I, I love watching football at times. Like there've been these moments where I'm just totally engrossed with it. So I, I'm not really like I was watching preseason, uh, like the first preseason yeah. game cause it was on and I was like scouting the fourth string preseason quarterback <laughs> on the Niners so I could make, you know, uh, my criticisms to you about how the fourth string quarterback is so awful compared to Kaepernick. Who's just, you know, at the training facility. Yeah. But you know, it's, it, there's a reason it's the most watched sport. You know, it it gets to something in your brain. I, I haven't set up a boycott. I haven't joined the boycott, but I haven't been watching. So, you know, like (laughs) I could call it, you know, I could call it a boycott. Yeah. Um, Lindsay, my wife would be really thrilled if I would boycott the NFL. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But yeah, yeah so for, that, for know, me, it's a big, it's a, a, it's hard. Like I, I might like, it's a, yeah. it, like I said, it's part of my wiring to like turn on the TV on Sundays and to sit and watch a lot of games, to watch the highlights, to do fantasy football. It's just, you know, you kind of gets ingrained into your DNA. So it's been tough, but I, um, but I thought about it, you know, Colin had the courage to take the stand that he did last year um, and to do the things that he did with, uh, debug and other organizations across the country to stand against police violence, to stand with my clients uh, who are in the crosshairs of mass incarceration, knowing full well that he could lose his job. And now it's happening. And so I just thought to myself, if he did that, like, what am I doing to support him? And then also what am I doing in, to honor the, the, my clients that he was trying to honor through his um, words and his actions? So I'm trying this past weekend. I didn't watch any games, uh, which was hard and I'm going to keep, keep trying. Um, but every time I hear these stories about Colin Kaepernick and all the things that he's doing, he's done and he's doing, it actually kind of just affirms it for me. And then Marshawn Lynch. So let's, you know, transitioning to that Marshawn Lynch on Saturday, I think or Sunday, whenever the Raiders played their game, he sat down during the national anthem and I, he hasn't said anything about why he did so, but the assumption is because he's been outspoken for Colin Kaepernick before was that he was doing it in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. So that kind of affirmed or buoyed my, um, my buoyed is my new word, uh, <laughs> buoyed the spirit um, to kind of keep staying in solidarity with, uh, with Cap. And so if Cap signs, yeah, you're, you're back on. Yeah, I'm back on because that you know the NFL uh, and a and an owner would have s- stood up to this kind of freight train of of 
kind of uh, ignorance that has left him unsigned. I mean, this idea that someone who could be doing the things that Colin has done for the communities across our country is somehow bad for business or that he's a bad person or that he's unfit to be on an NFL team or that he's a distraction, all these things that you're talking about is just asinine. And um, the idea that, um, and what kind of message is sent when he does something like that and remains unsigned, it just sends the message that no other player or just average person should stand up for what they believe in because for fear that they're going to lose their job or not be able to find the next job. So I, I, uh, so Michael Bennett with the Seattle Seahawks also sat, uh, he was questioned or interviewed about it. And one of the questions came up is, are you anti-military? Because there's this militaristic, you know, zeal with the NFL. And uh, one of the things he responded to on that was, first of all, I want people to, understand that i love the military my father's in the military i love hot dogs like any other american i love football like any other american but i don't love segregation i don't love riots or oppression i just want to see people have the equality that they deserve and i want to be able to use this platform to continuously push the message of that that was pretty pretty great and then uh, jack del rio was asked about marshawn lynch jack del rio is the coach of the Oakland Raiders and <laughs> this take I felt like just resonated with me and I it makes me question the whole Colin Kaepernick not being able to play in the NFL which was talk to Marshawn wanted to make sure we're on the same page I said just so you understand how I feel I very strongly believe in standing for the national anthem but I'm going to respect you as a man you do your thing okay so that's a non-issue for me it's just these you know it's it's being blown up by some teams to say this will affect our marketability. It'll affect our season ticket sales. They could define any problem that way. And it's curious to see, or not curious, it's alarming uh, to see when that problem of sales, like what's going to hurt our bottom line is defined as Colin Kaepernick and not the various other things like head injuries or, uh, or about the problems with domestic violence or all the other things that are going on in the NFL. Yeah. So I think we should end, yeah, end the deep dive. Let's yeah. emerge from the deep dive. Go Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. Get signed. If you if, if NFL teams, if you sign Colin Kaepernick, I will Sajid, buy his jersey. Saja will buy a jersey. It'll even if it's like a Ravens jersey or a Panthers jersey, he'll Buffalo Bills, Jacksonville Jaguars. He's gonna get he'll get four jerseys from your team. He'll get the backups. He'll uh he'll get all the merch. Yeah. Uh he'll watch your games. <laughs> And I'll get Raj and Sharice to do it yeah, too. He'll yeah. draft Kaepernick on fantasy. <laughs> it, Sajid, you know, if meetings. Kaepernick gets yeah. signed, you have to sign him in fantasy. Yeah, I'm otherwise you I'm know, in. You I'm have in. to use a first round pick he's, on him. I mean, he's like a hero of mine right now. I mean, uh, he like I I I I've all, I grew up idolizing Malcolm X, still do, and Caps. You know, he's right up there in terms of his courage, his message. You know, the things that he's doing. So yeah, I'm all in. Well, why don't we take a break, and we will come back and do our things. Okay, we're back. So we're going to end our show uh, with some things. So I will uh, go first if it's okay with everybody. So, um, you know, all, I, was, I was freaking out over the weekend, like I'm sure a lot of people are. My stress was all directed towards being on my phone, like watching Twitter and watching video and watching all kinds of content. But the thing that I, I wanted to shout out was just Barack Obama. And he took to Twitter... Uh, and his he tweeted out a Nelson Mandela 
quote, uh, it's apparently, so it's been like 3.7 million times. Uh, so if you're a Twitter person, you can go on and, and it's one of the high points of Twitter as opposed to the many, many low points. Uh, but he, you know, so I just wanted to, my thing is this little three tweet uh, exchange, which is no one's born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. So that's my thing. That's the affirmation. Thanks, thanks, Barack Obama. Uh, we're, we hope that you join the Aider Nation. Yeah. Uh, my thing is, on a personal note, um, my former intern, his name is Nagad Zucky. He listens to the Aider and a Better podcast. So he's part of the Aider Nation. He's been uh, kind of roaming the state as a public defender in a bunch of different counties. And now he's he's from San Jose and he's coming home to our office, uh, Santa Clara County PD's office next Monday. So I'm giving him a shout. Uh, hopefully he's listened to this part of the podcast so he can hear his name. But yeah, welcome back, Nagat. I uh, hope to work with you soon. Dang, you, yours was deep. I was going to shout out Goody's Ice Cream on like Meridian and San Carlos because they have an ice cream called Raj. <laughs> really right? in your do. honor no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so then so i can i have a second shout yeah of course okay i was actually gonna shout out um our durham folks in spirit house because you know this morning so the woman who took down that statue had court right because she had um she was facing charges and so the night before muffin made a call out say we got a court mom we gotta support this woman so she went this morning with other folks who were also there at that protest and then they got arrested by the sheriffs because they were there right and so she talked to all of them with you know one of the women's attorneys and said ask for or they're gonna bail you you know they're gonna give you ask for or they all got or that hour that means they were released on their own recognizance no bail yes cool yeah i i want to give a shout out as a thing um more of this which is community that wants to fight mass incarceration, joining up with public defenders. Um, I feel like that is where there's a real possibility of us making some seismic shifts. Um, so wherever you are, are listening to the Aider Nation or part of it, whether you're a community member or you're an attorney, a public defender, try to find the space in between and, and fill that space because I think that's where we're going to free a lot of people. All right. Let's well, get free. Let's get free. Thank you so much for listening to Ada and a Better Podcast. We will talk to you next time.